Hello, and welcome back to the Dialexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Shavasava, and I'm your host. This week, we're joined by Professor Erica Schumner, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at Syracuse University and pre- previously an assistant professor at Pitt. Hi, Professor Schumner. How are you today? Hi, I'm very well, Sara. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, thank you for your time and for, for being here today. Uh, before we begin our discussion on some really cool metaphysical questions and, and, and inter, interconnections with identity, um, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into philosophy and, and what? Yeah, well, um, I guess there are two sorts of stories about how I got into philosophy. The first one is that I was a history major in college. I loved history in high school, and I was uh, very excited to study it in college, and I did complete that major, and I loved it. But then I took uh, an ethics class in my sophomore year, and I just immediately fell in love with philosophy. Um, I think what really attracted me to philosophy was just the clarity of prose and the clarity of ideas. I felt like I could express myself a lot more easily in philosophy than I could say in um, literature classes or English classes. And um, the topics were just uh, totally fascinating to me. So I was enthralled right away and I did a double major and never looked back. So that's story number one. Story number two is that both my parents have PhDs in philosophy from UCLA. Um, and so it's kind of the family business, even though my mom went on to uh, become a lawyer. Uh, so she, uh, after she did her PhD, but my dad is a professor. So um, they never really like pressured me or even encouraged me to study philosophy due to my like um, feverish love of studying history. But I guess it was in the blood or something, so, because when I took the first philosophy class, I just had to keep on going with it. That's really, really interesting. So, like, when you were a kid, did you ever, like, explore some questions with your parents? Or, like, how did, like, I don't know, the dinner table conversation usually go? Yeah, well, that's kind of hilarious, because, like, at, well, I think that's hilarious, maybe. But, like, my dad, on the, my dad would always drive me to school and pick me up from school, because my mom was a lawyer, had lawyer hours, so my dad would um, drop me off and pick me up. And, like, every, like, almost every time, uh, he would raise some sort of philosophical puzzle in the car, um, like some sort of paradox of personal identity or um, or some other kind of um, paradox, like um, the sororities paradox. And I would always be like, oh, why is my dad like asking me these weird questions like at 7 a.m.? And I could never answer them. And I never could, I never fully like understood what was going on. Um, but I guess I guess he just like created a sleeper agent such that when I arrived in college, like I was like, yes, <laughs> I need to study all these questions. Yeah, so maybe in that way he was he was already preemptively shaping your identity, which is exactly what our conversation is today about uh, metaphysics and its relationship to identity. And you've written a paper titled "The Metaphysics of Identity: Is Identity Fundamental?" Um, and I'm kind of curious to uh, like about what identity really is. Like, it's a it's a word that gets tossed around really frequently nowadays um, with a lot of these movements, but also in like schools, uh, trying to like be respectful of different identities is a, is a really growing trend. But what exactly is an identity? Is there a definition that like metaphysicians like to use? Um, and how exactly is it like applied to everyone? 
That's a really great question. So I definitely think that the term identity has a variety of uses. And um, especially like nowadays, we talk about like identity politics or like your sense of identity. Then it seems like um, people have in mind uh, something like a kind of sense of self or a sense of certain um, core features that they have, or if not core features, very sort of important features at the time, maybe you're um, uh, maybe having to do with say your gender identity or something like that. Um, I would say that there are other uses of identity also, that those uses of identity do get discussed in philosophy and by metaphysicians, um, but there are, uh, there's a, another sense of the term identity, um, which is just, uh, Basically, the way I think of it is a relation of one and the sameness, right? So this is kind of like um, more akin to the notion of identity or term identity as as uh, as you've seen in mathematics when you see an equal sign, right? Um, so there, it's like when you see an equal sign, where they say. Uh, uh, and then you say like, okay, that means that the thing on the left-hand side and the thing on the right-hand side of this equal side are one and the same. Um, so a lot of times when metaphysicians are talking about identity and um, me in particular, when I write about identity, I'm interested in this relation of one and the sameness. When are objects numerically one and the same? So in this sense of identity, just to give an example, right? Something like uh, Samuel Clemens is, uh, is, Mark Twain. That's the is of identity. Samuel Clemens is the pen name for Mark Twain. So Samuel Clemens and Mark Twain, one and the same entity. Beyonce Knowles and Sasha Fierce, they're identical, uh, one and the same entity. So what I'm interested in question are in questions of uh, when does this sense of identity hold between entities, people or other types of objects or even other kinds of entities? Um, and when entities are identical or distinct, as in non-identical, what explains those facts? What is it? The, what makes it the case that uh, uh, that one thing is identical with itself or distinct from other things? So, so I guess I have like a kind of quick question here. So I know like the the common definition of identity or like like what's kind of most utilized is like about like identity politics or what you identify as and those things. So in the same I guess logic. Um, how does that not, how can, or maybe it doesn't, I don't know, it seems though that it can maybe apply into this same sort of mathematical equation kind of interpretation of identity as well. So like, for example, like, for example, um, I don't know, let's say I use he, him pronouns. And so I don't know if you say like he, him can be equated to Sarish. I mean, that doesn't necessarily make sense, but like you're applying that pronoun onto a subject or, or someone, which in this case is me. Is that also something that you explore or is that something can be done in your exploration? Because I'm also kind of thinking about like the ways in which, you know, vice versa may not be true, right? Like, for example, if you identify as they, them, um, you like they, them may not always mean Sarish and Sarish may not always mean they, them and vice versa. So is it always uh, like when you're looking at these like sameness identity kind of, does it always need to be uh, like these two point to each other in an infinite and in vacuum space, or what is it like? So again, yeah, those are great questions. Um, one, qu okay, so one thing, uh, one thing I think about is that, like, when we're using this numerical identity sign, like, 
the ease of identity. They're one and the same thing. Um, typically, uh, we would say that we would say if we're going to identify Sorish with somebody, like in an identity statement, right? There are different ways we could do that. Um, we, do you have a nickname, Sorish? You have any nicknames? All right. Uh, say, pretend your nickname was uh, Doctor S, right? like a Marvel nickname or something, right? Like one way, one way to say it would be like, okay, Sarish is identical with Sarish. That's the same kind of identity claim, maybe as Sarish is identical with Doctor S. Um, they differ in their cognitive value, right? Like one of them seems totally trivial. Sarish is identical with Sarish, and then one of them maybe I would need to know your nickname to know that it's true that Sarish is identical with Dr. S, but they can both be identity claims. Um, it's a little harder if we think about the, the identity claim being flanked on the one side by a name like Sarish and the other side by pronouns like he, him. Uh, I don't know if metaphysicians really um, talk about identity claims of that kind, but I think that we can get at a certain thing that you're wondering about, which is like something like, is it part of the identity of Sarish that, he involves these sort of he, him pronouns or goes by these he, him pronouns or uses these he, him pronouns. And I think that's connected to, um, I think that's connected to certain related issues of kind of essence and essential properties. So I mean, this question of like, is, is your gender identity, is your pronoun identification, what pronouns you think are right for you or feel right for you, is that an essential feature of you? Is it the case that wherever we have Sarge, we have somebody who identifies with he, him pronouns? Or is that not the case? And I was thinking like, you're thinking like, oh, maybe that's not the case for everybody, like especially gender fluid people. Like sometimes maybe they identify with they, them, maybe sometimes they identify with she, her. I read that about Demi Lovato recently, right? So, um, so I think there's this question, and I wouldn't exactly put it as a question about numerical identity, but maybe it's a question about um, a, a person's uh, essential features, whether this counts as an essential feature of a person or a necessary feature, right? Is it necessary? Does it always, is it always, does it have to be the case when we have, so if we have somebody who identifies with he, him pronouns? Does okay, that and then sense? Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. But are those also like metaphysical questions, or is that like a different branch of philosophy at that point? That's a great question. I I am well. First, I should preface this by saying like I am a very uh, metaphysics inclusive. So anything that like I think can count as a metaphysical question should count at least in part as a metaphysical question. But I would say that like even uh, even putting my like. Hegemonical tendencies aside, um, yeah, th there are those questions that arise in um, the metaphysics of gender, right? So a lot of people, especially uh, Robin Dembroff at Yale, um, who has have really exciting work about the metaphysics of gender, and yeah, what does it mean to have certain gender identities or sexual orientations? Um, they work uh, they work on that a lot, right? So, um, so there, I definitely think this counts as a branch of metaphysics in a thriving area of metaphysics. Um, but it's also an it's also a topic that I think hasn't 
always been discussed by people who self-identify as metaphysicians. So, um, for example, there's a long history in feminist philosophy um, of people discussing these kinds of issues. And um, and it's not clear to me that at least at all points in history, <laughs> um, when they've been discussing those issues, uh, they've been included as metaphysicians or people doing metaphysics. Um, yeah. so I think okay, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. And, and I think like metaphysics is often like, it's, it's just genuinely a really broad space. Like there's so many different questions to explore there. Um, and I think a lot of our past podcast episodes have explored some of those. So if anyone's listening and wants to, to listen to those, then you can definitely check them out. But I guess I have a, kind of a more interesting and specific question on this sameness idea of identity. So at what what is the threshold to identify that sameness. So like, for example, the way that I'm thinking about this right now is, for example, if I see two identical twins, I'm thinking that like, dang, I would not have known that this person is a different person had I not known that they were twins or that they both exist in the same world, right? Um, until you know someone's a twin, often you might miss, like you might just interpret them to be the same person you'd met like two days ago, but it's a different person, right? So at what level, and even biologically, there's like some statistic that like, genetically there's like an average of like 5.6 genetic mutations that create the other twin so they're very very closely genetically related but you wouldn't characterize them to be the same right you wouldn't say that twin a is twin b so why is that the case at what level do we have thresholds uh to distinguish between who is who Great. So I think there are two questions in there. One is an epistemological question. It's a question of how we know certain things, right? Like how could we know that these are twins as opposed to one person, right? Um, and then there is a very closely related metaphysical question, which is, are there identity criteria that distinguish this, these people, right? Um, are there um, principles we can use to uh, uh, to determine that these are different people or the same the same person, right? And there, the idea is that uh, whether there are identity criteria, certain criteria that spell out when objects are identical or distinct, that's a metaphysical question. It's not just a question about how we could know um, people are distinct. It's a question of like, all right, are there principles <laughs> that are true that distinguish or identify? So that's just um, setting aside or just distinguishing the metaphysical and epistemic angle. There is also, yeah, then there's the harder question of like, okay, how can I, like, what is the principle? <laughs> like, <laughs> what does determine, the what is the metaphysical principle? What does determine that um, these twins are distinct? And that is uh, that there are two in number, right? Um, and that is something that I work on. So there have been famous principles of individuation throughout um, uh, the history of philosophy. One I like to study quite a bit is called uh, Leibniz's Law. And uh, Leibniz's Law maintains that objects, say, call them X and Y, right? Objects X and Y are identical if and only if they have the same properties. Right, um, where we think of properties as something like 
features and it's very controversial exactly which properties, uh, uh, what the scope of these properties are supposed to be, um, but we can set that aside, right? So here, if you liked something like Leibniz's law, right, you would say like, okay, yeah, what distinguishes, um, what distinguishes those identical twins are say the slight differences in their fingerprints. Those are different features that they have, right? Um, another thing that distinguishes them is their birth time, right? One was born uh, a minute earlier than the other. So we could use those features, those general properties to distinguish the twins. But trouble comes if there could be two entities, so they're two in number, but they share all of their properties in this sense. And um, people responding to Leibniz uh, were very worried about this. So for example, right, like perhaps you could imagine um, there are two spheres, an empty space, or two eggs, you can imagine, and they're the same shape, they're the same size, they're the same color, they're the same temperature, um, they just both popped into existence at the same time, but yet there are two in number. How could we distinguish those spheres if they have, or eggs, if they have all the same properties? So that is a notorious alleged counterexample to Leibniz's law. And that's just one of the type of controversies that people are interested in when they're interested in these questions of numerical identity and distinctness. And I guess also here, um, you know, I was talking last week um, with uh, Dr. or Professor Kevin Richardson from Duke. and they do research on like kind of gen like fluidity or like social identity um, as a whole. And so I'm wondering about like this concept of fluidity as it concerns as it's concerned with identity. So like when it comes to kind of kind of having ha having all of these rules or like these, I guess, check boxes for what um, like when you're comparing two subjects, right? Like these eggs, right? When we have these check boxes for what both of them are, doesn't that also open up um, a realm of constantly having checkboxes that misinterpret uh, specific like identities. And I know like identity here is interpreted as a different thing, but let's say there's like, I mean, there's an infinite possibility of like how many checkboxes there could be, right? And I, at one level, there is gonna be something that's missed, right? So how does metaphysics deal with that question? Like, is it always a strict, like this is a rule-based thing? Are there gaps in metaphysics? Like there, this is a fluid structure. We've identified it as a fluid structure. Uh, we don't need to look at it beyond uh, a fluid structure. Like, is there anything like that in metaphysics? Because it seems like almost that it's always like very strict almost because it's defining like. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I would say. Yes. So I would say that. Um, so one thing is I don't really I don't really work um, uh, on gender identity um, uh, in particular or like gender fluidity. So I'm, I will stay away from <laughs> I'll stay away from uh, uh, trying to answer that question specifically because I'm this just outside of my um, realm of expertise. But I would say yes, there. So one. So yeah, one question that people are interested in, right? Or this one, this family of questions that we were just talking about, are that like, are there identity criteria for objects at a time or across times, either way, right? Some set of rules or principles that tell us when objects are identical or distinct. Now, there are various reasons why you might think maybe there just aren't these criteria. Like maybe there isn't just a set of finite rules um, that determine uh, 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 that determine the identity or distinctness of objects. 
One reason to think that is if, uh, <laughs> if historically, um, for all of the different sorts of rules or principles that have been proposed, counterexamples have been proposed to that. Right. Um, so this is uh, something that happens a lot in philosophy and especially, for example, with Leibniz's law, um, uh, we may have a uh, counterexample to Leibniz's law. If we have two spheres or eggs that are uh, distinct, but yet have all the same features. In general, when people have proposed identity criteria, there have been more philosophers coming next who propose counterexamples to those identity criteria. So that's led some people to think like, oh, okay, do I even really need to be going on this search for identity criteria? Maybe they're just aren't identity criteria. And then you have to ask, okay, what are the alternatives there, right? Um, and there are different, different sorts of levels of radicalism, I guess you could go to here, right? One would be, oh, maybe there are identity criteria for certain things, but not things in general. Like maybe there are identity criteria for apples. I could give you a set of rules or principles that tell us when apples are identical or distinct, but I can't do that for like super complex entities like people or, or planets or something like that. I don't know if planets are more complex than apples, but whatever, right? Um, so uh, they probably are. So, okay, so um, that's one way you could go is to say like, oh, okay, there are, there are some identity criteria for certain things, but not for other things, right? Another way you could go is just say, look, let's just not entertain identity criteria at all. Like maybe there just aren't worthwhile identity criteria for anything, right? And this, in which case, maybe you still think that things are identical or distinct, right? We still can identify and distinguish objects, but this is just a brute fact of the matter, right? It's just fundamental, it's unexplained in some sense, right? And another, and this is like what I consider the way more radical view, right? Is to say, look, there aren't identity criteria. And moreover, maybe like the, there isn't an identity relation at all. So um, there are people in the history of philosophy like Wittgenstein who've entertained this kind of idea that like maybe when we talk about identity, we might have originally thought that this was a genuine relation, but like it's not. And if it's not a genuine relation, then we really need to rethink this project of giving identity criteria if our identity criteria were supposed to, in some sense, explicate an identity relation. Okay, awesome. That makes sense. And I think like, you know, while you're talking about this, I was kind of thinking about um, like, you know, the space that's most, I guess, I don't want to say attributed, but like, I feel like is most um, concerned with identity can, can often be considered to be like ontology, because it's like about the nature of being almost. Uh, but why exactly, uh, you know, did you explore metaphysics instead of ontology? And like, could you explain the difference between between two of them? Because I know, like Google, I think, says ontology is a branch of metaphysics, which I guess, like, technically is true. But I feel like in papers and stuff, they're often very, like, heavily distinguished and what they're, like, examining. So why exactly did, like, uh, you explore identity with metaphysics? And what does it really mean for identity to be characterized by metaphysics? Is it just, like, this identity criteria stuff? Like, what is it? Great questions. So I am, I've always been a little bit fuzzy on um, the distinction between ontology and metaphysics myself. So yeah, I guess if I had to, if I had to try to characterize it, I would say that on, ontology is a kind of branch of metaphysics. And it's maybe the most well-known branch, right? Like it's like about what objects I shouldn't even say objects. It's about what kinds of entities in general exist, right? Like what entities exist and which do not exist, right? Um, and I guess 
the easiest way for me to think about it is that metaphysics is a broader category than that because some metaphysical questions aren't necessarily about what exists. So for example, one big metaphysical question is about um, uh, uh, the nature of free will, right? What does it take to have free will? What would make a person free or not? And there's maybe there's a way to torture that question into a question of whether X exists. But intuitively, you might think, at least when we approach that question, it's a question of like, what freedom is like? What does it mean to have freedom, right? Um, uh, and so, yeah, how can we characterize freedom, the nature of freedom, right? Uh, another sort of question is like, um, you might be interested, metaphysicians are uh, often interested in metaphysical dependence, what depends on what, right? They might be like, okay, does my mental life depend on um, the physical constituents of the universe, right? Is in some sense, uh, do, do the existence of souls, if they do exist, depend on the existence of matter? Those are questions not about what exists necessarily, but the dependence between various things that exist. So um, those are just two examples, free will and metaphysical dependence of two areas of metaphysics that aren't straightforwardly about ontology, about what exists, right? Okay, now there's this question of, all right, when you want to study the metaphysics of identity, is that a question of ontology or is that a more general question of metaphysics? And that's, a, that's kind of hard to answer. So there's a way in which you might think it's a question of ontology and that um, at least one way, uh, one way to get into that mindset is through this philosopher, uh, Willard Van Norman Quine. And he coined a very popular uh, a saying, which was no entity without identity, <laughs> where the idea is like, uh, when we posit the existence of an entity, we're positing some sort of identity conditions for it, right? Um, uh, or we're positing some sort of identity fact. Um, and there, because, because of that saying and the popularity of that saying um, starting from the 60s, people have kind of closely intertwined existence questions with identity questions. Um, uh, so I would say that they are connected. Um, I think that, yeah, there are also metaphysical questions that, about identity that maybe don't count quite as questions of ontology straightforwardly, right? Like you might, like I'm interested in whether identity is fundamental, right? Um, really what that means for me is I'm interested in whether identity facts depend on other facts or whether they are grouped or fundamental. That's not straightforwardly a question about what exists, right? It's just a question instead about what identity facts depend upon. I'm taking for granted that those facts exist. And I'm asking, what do they depend upon of anything? So I think if you wanna say, look, ooh, are questions of identity, questions of ontology, or questions of metaphysics, I'd probably say that they, that, um, really both, right? Uh, there are questions about identity that link up to questions of ontology and to um, other questions in that. Okay, yeah, that I mean that, that that makes sense. Thanks for like the like pointing out that that quote because I think I've heard that quote a lot, and <laughs> I think it's a great one. Um, and I guess maybe we can talk about your research now, like specifically, is identity fundamental? <laughs> like, is it? What do you think? And like, what kind of what kind of research have you done in the field? And like, can you explain it? So can I explain it? Probably not too well. Let me. I so I don't. I wish I was a philosopher that had like 
a view that and I and then like pursuing that project and that view. But unfortunately, at least with respect to these questions, I'm still very un unsure about what I think about ultimately, right? So I'll tell you some of the things I, I do think about, right? So I'm I think ever since grad school, I've been kind of resistant to the idea that identity is fundamental um, uh, or that distinctness is fundamental, right? Um, so I think I think something like, uh, uh, I think that this is maybe easiest to get a handle on with like people, right? Um, so I kind of don't think it's just a brute fact that you and I are distinct persons, right? I'm like, no, there are things that explain that. You were born in a certain place at a certain time, and I was born in a different place in a different time. You have certain sort of mental states, I have different sorts of mental states, right? So I've always been inclined to think, like, especially with creatures, macro, <laughs> with macro creatures like you and me, uh, especially with people, that they the identity and distinctness of us isn't just fundamental. There are these things we can appeal to. to it. So I, uh, I, I've kind of extended that view, and I think in general um, uh, we should at least try to search for um, uh, explanations of the identity or distinctness of objects. So my view has been, yeah, that. They aren't, these aren't, um, uh, these aren't fundamental facts, identity and distinctness facts. And uh, should I go into more detail or is that enough detail for that? Analysis? Well, I think maybe if we can like explore kind of the difference between identity and distinctness facts first and like kind of what the paper was identifying there could like kind of prove to be like helpful to kind of understand the entire theory almost here. Great, sure. So I was interested in that paper in uh, identity and distinctness facts at a time. So uh, considering objects existing at a time. And I was uh, specifically mystified by these kinds of cases that are counterexamples to Leibniz's law that I talked about earlier. So for example, if we could imagine an empty universe except for two iron spheres, um, that have all the same sort of physical characteristics. This case was due to Max Black and Leibniz himself echoed it um, uh, in his uh, letter to Cassati. But um, I'm interested in that. So I think that intuitively when you describe that kind of world, you're describing two spheres, right? So that there we can call those spheres Castor and Pollux, that's what Max Black calls them, right? And a distinctness fact is just Castor is distinct from Pollux. And an identity fact would be something like Pollux is identical with Pollux, or Castor is identical with Castor. So my idea was that if there are these distinct spheres in that universe, um, their distinctness isn't just this primitive fact, just like your and my distinctness isn't just a primitive fact. There must be something to explain that distinctness. Um, and I think the same thing for identity. Yeah. Okay, that definitely makes sense. And so in that case, then when we're exploring kind of um, almost like wondering why or why not identity is fundamental, what kind of benefit does that bring us, right? Because like from what I'm, I mean, like those questions seem really interesting to explore and kind of identify, but the way that, um, and I know that this is, this may not be like a hundred percent true in the metaphysical space but like it almost seems that like identity can be very subjective based off of each person so each person may have like these identity criteria etc but it seems very subjective and if we're saying that it's not fundamental 
maybe you know there, there there just aren't these rules etc that we can kind of have to identify identity so um like in that in that space like why is it necessary to understand whether or not uh, identity is fundamental what new research does it in create in philosophy what new questions can we ask and how does it help us in maybe our daily lives if there is any great yeah so well one thing is i'm not sure that i i'm not sure i would agree that identity is totally subjective so maybe just um and this isn't my research per se but uh directly but um for example when we're dealing with questions of personal identity i think there there are reasons to think that um uh to think that whether people that it would be good to have some sort of criteria for when people are identical or distinct so in historically in metaphysics one reason that this has been important right or people have thought it's important to come up with some kind of identity criteria for people across times has to do with certain ethical projects so in particular projects of moral praise and blame figuring out when it's when it's uh, appropriate to morally praise somebody or morally blame them for an action. So one intuitive thought is we should never blame some, somebody for somebody else's action. I don't know if never, but on, <laughs> most of the time it would be very bad if we blamed one person for another person's action. So for example, say if I commit a crime, and then somebody blames you, Sarish, for that crime. We would, your lawyer would go and be like, "Well, look, you should, uh, you should deem Sarish innocent because he is distinct from Erica, and Erica committed this crime. Here's this evidence that Erica, a distinct person, committed this crime." Right. So we think it's very important. I think, right, like that uh, for blaming people, that we are making sure that we're blaming the same person, the the same person that committed the crime. Right. So for that kind of reason, uh, oftentimes metaphysicians have thought that it's important to have some sort of criteria of uh, personal identity. And this isn't just a thought experiment. Right. So there are real life examples that make this issue salient, I think. So, for example, one criteria for personal identity across time is psychological continuity. This idea that a person at an earlier time is identical with a person at a later time, if and only if the person at the later time remembers the experiences of the person at the earlier time, right? Um, so what makes a 17-year-old, 18-year-old Sarish identical with five-year-old Sarish, uh, uh, teenage Sarish remembers the experiences or some of them of five-year-olds, right? But uh, uh, if, if that's a if that's the appropriate criteria of personal identity, then we're going to have to face certain questions, say, um, when we prosecute people for crimes they committed long ago and no longer remember, right? So there have been cases of this some, there's recently where people have, uh, uh, where at least the courts have alleged that uh, uh, somebody uh, had participated in uh, war crimes during World War II, but they're prosecuting that person, allegedly that person now, when say they have dementia or Alzheimer's and can no longer remember committing those crimes, right? 
So here, one question is like, oh, if it's the right criteria of personal identity, if psychological continuity is the right criteria, then that 100-year-old uh, ex-war criminal is numerically distinct from the person who committed the crimes in 1940, right? And if that's the case, and we think we shouldn't punish somebody for a distinct person's crimes, then it might be immoral to prosecute um, the 100-year-old person with dementia for the crimes that the person uh, uh, in 1940s committed. So there are reasons to think that there are sometimes, that sometimes we want criteria of personal identity. It's an important thing for our ethical and moral projects. It wouldn't be enough to just say like, oh, okay, everybody can determine on their own uh, when they're identical or distinct or their past reasons. Those some philosophers do think that, right? Um, but, but one type of pushback has been like, well, um, we do need these kinds of of identity criteria because a lot of our ethical judgments and legal judgments uh, actually depend on having them. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really, really good example. And I, I guess it kind of almost seems like epistemology and metaphysics come together here because like a question of how we know whether or not that person actually has experiences or remembers those experiences too, um, which also relates with biology at that level because there's a question of dementia. So there's a lot of different fields coming into play here, which I always love when I see it in philosophy or anywhere because like it's really, really fascinating to see all of these fields come together. Um, but I guess um, like over here, I also have like a follow-up question almost um, with kind of like this thought that you described of like, if you remember your past self, like this continuity almost with like psychological continuity, continuity. So what is that like process or that like reason, or I guess almost like a, like a theory, uh, what is that theory like founded upon? Like, why is that necessarily true that if you remember your past self, you're in line with your past self, right? Like, let's say, um, I don't know, uh, in a lot of like ancient, like philosophy there's like a lot of philosophy to like better yourself over a period of like downfall etc right now if you remember your past self at that at that time period what for what reason should you have to like uh take into consideration that past self as your new self almost because like technically psychological continuity would say that you remember your past self right um so what what does that have to do or what is it what is that theory founded upon you know Right. Well, yeah, the theory is usually attributed to John Locke, though there might be others that uh, had that theory before him. And here's where my lack of knowledge of history of philosophy uh, is salient. Um, but I think there are different sorts of reasons you might be inclined to this sort of view, right? So one reason is... Um, one reason is if you're uh, kind of rebelling against a bodily conception of personal identity. So here's one thing that I think is maybe salient, especially now, right? Like if you think it's possible for you, uh, your consciousness say, to be downloaded into a robot body after you die and for you to live on in that way, for you to continue to exist, even though your whole physical body ceases to exist, right? That might be one reason to think like, oh, okay, it's not that personal identity is determined by bodily continuity, right? Because I could go on existing in my new awesome robot body. Um, so because of those kinds of thought experiments, right, which um, a proto-version Locke himself had, right, uh, because of those kinds of thought experiments, some people are inclined to think like, oh, okay, 
a good criterion for personal identity isn't bodily continuity. It must be something mental, right? It must be, why is that person in the robot body me, even though it has a completely different body? It's because that person remembers my experience. They say, oh yeah, I'm Erica. I remember when I lived in a house and was made of flesh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so it's, the, it's often that kind of consideration that will lead people to, um, uh, uh, to a psychological criterion, a, a psychological continuity theory of personal identity over something like a bodily continuity theory. Um, I think that there are, but there are um, counterexamples to psychological continuity theories. And I think you are already starting to raise one kind of issue with them, right? Which is um, this question of, is remembering, my, remembering a person's experiences sufficient for um, being the same person, right? Um, so here's one kind of case that, um, well, it's very controversial, but you might think um, uh, presses on that, on that question, right? So here is, we can imagine somebody going on living their life. This is a, this is a version of what's called uh, the Phineas Gage case. Um, and then we imagine he, uh, he, this person, he undergoes a horrible accident. Right. And after this accident, his personality suddenly changes, right? Like he used to be fun, easygoing. Now he's super angry. He's sullen. Um, he has outbursts that he never had. We can imagine he speaks languages that he never knew, right? Um, some sort of uh, something happened in his brain to unlock knowledge of different languages, right? In that case, even if that person remembers the earlier person's experiences, some people might think, oh, there's such a radical and abrupt shift in personality that maybe should be distinct people um, or they should count as distinct people even if the later person does remember the earlier person's uh, uh, experiences. So I, that's, I'm not sure that case has convinced many people but, um, but that's one type of example of one way to think like oh okay maybe just the fact that you remember a person's experiences that isn't enough to be to count as identical um, to that earlier person. Right. I think that definitely makes sense. And I guess I have a question now on the ways in which that like students can use um, like this understanding of identity um, to maybe like help them understand identity a little bit better or like how identity is interacted uh, or how metaphysics interacts with identity um, to shape their own lives and, and like take a positive takeaway from this. Because, you know, Delexcon like tries to focus on kind of young adults and like maybe like young, young the youth and how um, kind of philosophy can 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 actually answer a lot of interesting questions and help us. So is there any takeaway that like students can take away or anyone kind of listening to the podcast about identity or about ways in which it can interact with their daily life? Yes, I think so. So I think the most salient examples are going to be cases of personal identity, of what makes you one and the same person. So for example, um, one question to ask is like, um, how important is it to have the same values that you be the same person, right? So uh, 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 I think Derek Parfit, though I'm not sure he originated this case, um, uh, had, had in Reasons of Persons discusses the case of somebody who is the iconoclastic poet in college, right? And he's rebellious and he's anti-capitalist and he's a revolutionary. Um, uh, and that's how he is in his 20s. 
And imagine, what if we let him know that in his 40s, he would completely change his mindset and he would become a conservative investment banker, right? How would he think about himself in the future there, right? Um, so that kind of case um, often seems kind of disturbing to people. And especially like, I think to me, like just thinking like, uh, oh yeah, what if in the future my values do change? Um, what will I be like then? Um, what should I think about that now? Um, uh, should I uh, should I do things to prepare and make the life of that person better? Is that person really going to be me? Um, these are sorts of questions you might have, sort of disturbing questions, I think, but ones that are worth asking, right? So I think. Um, I don't think they're just questions of personal identity, whether that person is identical, whether that person in the future with radically different values is numerically the same person as you. I think that's only one of a couple different questions, of many different questions you can ask about this kind of case. But I guess I would encourage people to think about this kind of case. Like, well, we do have studies, right, that people do get more conservative as they age in their politics, right, um, on average. Like, uh, but that can seem really bad to you at the time, right? Like, oh, I don't want to be an investment banker in my 40s, maybe. They're not, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily an investment, but you know what I'm saying. Like, uh, it's it's uh, it might be disturbing to you to think like, oh, this person in the future in my body with my memories is going to have these radically different values. So I think there are the questions that I would encourage people to ask are like, yeah, if they do have that kind of value shift, do you think of them as really you? Is that really you or is that a different person. Um, also, uh, if it is you, if you do think, yeah, that's going to be me, I'm just going to have different values in the future. What does this mean about your long-term planning? Should you be planning your life, say, doing healthy things, making sure you don't get diabetes to protect that person in your body? Well, um, if you really hate or think you're going to hate that person or think that uh, their values disagree are going to disagree with you is what reasons do you have to prepare for their well-being? What actions should you take to prepare for their well-being? I think there are sort of these hard and disturbing questions that are related to personal identity questions, but don't just include them, um, that I think it's important to, um, yeah, to think about. Yeah, definitely. And I think like a lot of the times, like we don't really get, at least for like high schoolers, I don't really get the space to think about questions about our own lives. We're kind of like caught up in the moment about student things so like I think that like kind of reflection is really really good and necessary um and like not just for students but anyone really um it could be really really crucial because I think personal identity is some sense kind of like it's obviously it's, it's the personal identity so it's like really just about you um which is really really important um and I wanted to ask you for anyone who's interested in like following up on your research which I will leave a link to your website in the description, but I also wanted to ask you kind of what you're doing now, um, who forever, whoever like wants to reach out or like read a little bit more into it. Um, what is your research focused on now? Um, and what are some of the cool questions that you're exploring? So I have a couple new projects. Um, and so one new, very, very new project that I'm excited about is, um, is uh, questions about uh, uh, the nature of absurdity. So this is something that um, both analytic philosophers and non-analytic philosophers, and especially ex existentialists have asked questions about, like lots of people think there's a sense in which a person's life 
or certain events in a person's life are absurd. And I'm interested in whether we can give a metaphysical classification of what it is for, say, one's existence to be absurd or for certain events in certain in a person's life to be absurd. So one thing I'm more wonder, working on is, yeah, what the nature of absurdity is and how it relates to questions, say, about explanation. Are absurd events or absurd things unexplained? Um, are they surprising things? Um, what is the sense of surprise that we should use to appeal to here? Um, so those are the kinds of questions I've been interested in lately, but it's a very new project. So who knows where it's going to go, if anywhere. I mean, those are really, really good, like cool, interesting questions. So I wish you the best of luck in those projects and hopefully they go well. Um, but that about wraps up our, our discussion today. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Schumanner, for, for being here today and like kind of like, I guess, talking about identity and metaphysics and, and, and like all of these different thought experiments because I'm sure all, our audience don't know a lot because I definitely did. So yeah, thank, thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Tarish. It's been uh, really fun to talk to you. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Me.